out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. you. Uh, I have a personal experience of how you hold space, which is what we say for those of us who kind of facilitate in a way that's more about letting people be themselves and find their own solutions versus like facilitators kind of manipulating people and telling them what to do. So I'm looking forward to our call today. And one of the reasons I invited you for this show on racial healing is because the aspect of race as it relates to healing is really complex. And uh, while I know many people who work walk this journey, either because they have to or because they choose to, I think you have like an incredible personal life experience in the work uh, that has brought you to a level of depth that I, I know no one else to have taken. So would you share a little bit with us Something about yourself and why healing is important to you, like kind of an anecdote or an experience that kind of illustrates a little bit your own healing journey and how you came to put healing and racial healing at the center of your work. Okay, thank you, Rita. Oh my goodness, that's a mouthful. Why is healing important to me and racial healing specifically? I guess I will start with my children. So my children are multiracial, multicultural beings, and... um, They are descendants of the sons and daughters of the American Revolution and descendants of slaves. And so one point I remember sitting thinking, what's called of me to mother these children? Like, who do I need to be to be able to hold all of what travels in and with and through them? And so, you know, that's a part of why I I guess dive into my healing in the way that I continue to do. But my healing journey started when I was young. It started when I was 15. And it started because I'm an incest survivor and at 15 decided to go to court and press charges against my stepfather for sexual assault. And at the time, my mother was still married with him and I was living in the house with him. And he was sentenced 90 days to be served on weekends so he could go to work during the week. And so I lived with him during the week and he went to jail on the weekend and ended up taking on my own healing journey because I thought I was going to lose my mind if I didn't actually. Mm -hmm. And then on my 18th birthday, moved out of the house. So now at 48 years old, I have over 30 years of healing under my belt, which I think has me look at healing in a different way than a lot of people. So could you give us an example of how you looked at it then and how you looked at it now that kind of really brings out the concept of healing, like brings it more than an abstraction? Well, I think then, you know, someone once asked me, 
when I was in the courtroom, if I had any idea of how brave I was. And I said, I wasn't being brave. I was just trying to survive. (laughs) And I think trauma, for me, to look at what healing is, we first have to look at what trauma is. And trauma, to me, is an overload of the system, any system. And so whenever you have more coming in than the system can hold, there's a trauma created. And so the healing is how do you reconcile those places of trauma that live within you? And so that was my journey. How did I reconcile the places of trauma that I felt at that time that were an overload to my system that were too hard for me to carry or hold during that time? The other dynamic that I think is important in my story is that my stepfather is white and I'm an African-American woman. And so the piece around racial healing and that journey that I've walked is unique. I think my mother has known my stepfather since I was two years old and I've known him most of my life. I don't have any, I don't have a relationship with him now because he's chosen not to do his healing work. But I also think another component for me that kind of feeds into my view around racial healing is the school that I was raised in. I went to the School for Creative and Performing Arts in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the school was created in the 70s because there was a lawsuit against the Cincinnati Public School District that claimed that the district was racially segregated. And what they found is that the district was unintentionally segregated because the neighborhoods were so segregated. So the school district made an agreement to create these magnet schools so that they could have voluntary busing instead of forced busing. And one of the schools was the School for Creative and Performing Arts, which mission was integration through the arts. And they were under a court mandate, I think, until 1997 to have everything in the school be racially divided 49-49, white and black in the school. So I went from 7 to 12 grade to a school that, you know, if we had an audition for the play Annie, you knew they were going to cast a white Daddy Warbucks and a black, and they would mix the cast and then alternate performances. Um, While we were there, at least I didn't know that we were under that court mandate, but my experience was that I was in this school that was really integrated. And so coupled with that and my trauma and then my children, all has kind of helped to inform my views around race and what healing is needed. And you said this indirectly, just to bring it out a little bit more explicitly, is for your children's father is also white. Yes. Right. So you've been navigating this bridge for most of your life. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So tell me, what's your definition of healing? A definition for me is is integration, is reintegrating those parts of ourselves that we've cast aside for whatever reason. How do we bring ourselves more and more together so that we can accept the whole of who we are? It's I think there's a moment where we step into love and acceptance of who we are in that very moment that actually helps to elevate us to a new level of consciousness. There's a healing that happens in that moment. And I also think that trauma wants to be healed. So what happens is that it calls up experiences that sometimes can feel like it's re-traumatizing, but it calls up experiences to try to give us the opportunity to reconcile those things in us that we feel at one point has been an overload to the system. And so what's racial healing? I think that racial healing is is a really interesting thing because I think we've approached it in the wrong way. I think we in this country have approached racial healing and racial healing conversations as if no one's talking about it. But that's not the issue. Everybody's talking about it. The issue I actually think is that most of us aren't mature enough to have those conversations. 
And part of that is because you can't give what you don't have. And so if you don't have a particular level of love and care for yourself, how on earth do you think you can give it to me? And so for me, um, I don't know if racial healing is really separate than any other kind of healing. I think that it's as we step into our own internal power and heal those disparate parts of ourselves, that it makes way for us to have healing, more healed relationships with others. And so, so much of the places that I hold conversations around race, I actually try to keep people from having dialogue because I think that what happens when we step into dialogue is we often unconsciously step into the warrior archetype. And most of us aren't trained to be warriors. And so we may feel good in the moment, but then it never really changes anything. And I do think the warrior archetype has some wonderful tools for the conversations around racial healing. I think that three things that the warrior archetype brings to the conversation. Number one, is real warriors have a deep love and respect for the person on the other side. They know that they care about their experiences just as much as you care about yours. Real warriors really understand that there's a cost to the journey, that you can't get something new without giving up something. And then real warriors are willing to go in the mud and the dirt with you. And so I think that um, often in this culture, we confuse soldiering with warrioring. And soldiering are just about the fight. Warrioring has a little bit more of an honor to it. And so my job, I don't think, is to send people into war. I think my job is to prepare better warriors so Mm. that when they then go into the conversations, they're carrying those three tools that I just mentioned. And I remember you and I had a conversation, which we ended up posting on YouTube, right, about the marathoner or the sprinter. Like, are you in the walk for the, the short race, right, the campaign, the short term gain or are you in for the long run? And you had said you're definitely a marathoner. And I think that's kind of where probably one of the ways in which kind of our sisterhood has met, because I definitely am a marathoner too. And yeah. I'm wondering if this goal that you're saying of preparing warriors is one with this concept of you being a marathoner, of being in for the long haul, because I would imagine that preparing a warrior, just despite what Hollywood wants us to believe, we don't generally prepare warriors in like 10 weeks, five (laughs) weeks, kind of abbreviated into 20 minutes. Yes, it's real interesting. I have a friend, Mary Alice, who I love. She has this idea of creating Trojan mice. (laughs) which I think is just a wonderful vision. It's this idea that as we do the healing work across more and more people and we send them out into the world, it's this like this small kind of hidden army that goes out, changes the world, which I think is beautiful. But I think that when you're talking about the sprinter and the marathon, and first I want to explain a bit, a sprinter to me are the people, activists who are on the front lines who are pushing to change behavior. And we can do that, but usually we can only change behavior for a short period period of time, if we're not also doing the marathon, which I see as the underlying healing work, which is, you know, how are we healing the root causes of what what's happening? Because trauma wants to be healed, if you don't do that, the behavior will always snap back. Because again, trauma wants to be healed and it'll float to the surface. And so often we'll have these experiences where like whatever cause we're pushing forward, that we do get the shift behavior for a short period of time. And then we're surprised when it comes back, surprised when a law that we had gotten changed is automatically changed back or a movement that we feel has happened, you know, feels like it's taken three steps back. And it's because we never did the underlying healing of that. 
even now, I think in this country, where we hear so many people surprised or feel like we've gone backwards as far as race relations. I think it's not that we've gone backwards as much as we never really did the underlying healing to begin with. So the healing is just the trauma is being called is calling to be healed now. Love that. There's that law of physics, right? To every action responds a reaction equal and opposite. And so when that happens, then we're surprised. Kind of when it happens in the social arena, we get a little surprised. Uh, yeah. We're not surprised of it in the physical arena anymore. And one of the reasons I often talk about why kind of policy changing alone doesn't create systems changes for that exact reason, because it creates yes. a reaction in the opposite direction, which is exactly what we're experiencing right now. So thank you for bringing that up. So wanting to just like kind of root this and just have it become a little bit more belly and a little mm -hmm. less head, yeah. I'd love for you to give us an example of a uh, a process that you saw as racial healing and kind of what was this group or this people, whether it's your own or a group of people you worked with before, kind of the before and the after. And what I'm thinking about mainly is, you know, we worked on a racial healing project together. And I remember we were in one particular meeting where we asked people to give, offer any an experience they had of racial healing. And I was really, well, not surprised, but impacted by the fact that uh, most people had an example of racial conflict, but not an example of racial healing. And I think one of the privileges that, you know, you and I have in being in the work at the level of depth that we are is that we actually do have the experience of people transforming. And so we know what's possible. And for a lot of folk who just have the experience of racial conflict, be it Facebook conflict or, you know, people yelling on the street or a community like Germantown where there's a constant tension, like there's a cohabitation between white folk and black folk, but there's also a consistent tension. Sometimes that is along class lines as well. Predominantly white folk in Germantown are either working here or homeowners. The black folk in Germantown are generally speaking, not completely, but generally speaking, a lower class. So sometimes that allies with class and sometimes it doesn't. But I think most people don't really have a concept of like, what does racial healing actually look like? I think for white folk, that often gets collapsed or compounded with this idea of like, there's a rainbow on the other side and everyone's happy and, you know, the kumbaya vision, which is not actually what we're talking about when we're talking about racial healing. So could you offer us an example that would ground us kind of in our bellies about what it can look like and what it sometimes looks like? I don't know. I mean, and the reason I say that is because for me, the racial healing, it's relational. It's very personal. And so um, it happens on a one-to-one -one connection. It's a way of being together and not necessarily a methodology or an, you know, an event. One of the things that I have seen and been a part of, this piece, like I said before, you can't take somebody someplace you haven't been. I tend to be able to hold spaces where diverse groups of people come. And it's because I have the experience of going to places and being able to be in relationship with people from various backgrounds. A lot of the workshops that I hold space for tend to attract people from various backgrounds. I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of who feels comfortable enough to show up in the spaces that I hold. Interesting enough, there was a retreat center where I used to hold um, a particular retreat that I did, feminine wisdom retreat. I think I did 10 retreats in eight years. I held 
our, this particular retreat at this retreat center, and I would always get wonderful diversity as part of my experience in this retreat. And then there were two years that I actually partnered with the retreat center to put on this same retreat, and I got no diversity in the retreat. And what got really present to is because the retreat center, their organization couldn't hold the diversity. So now, even though I was having it at the space, because I was co-sponsoring it with them, even though I was sending it still out to my same mailing list that I always did, the capacity to hold us together, to hold that diversity wasn't there. And so it couldn't show up. I believe that only thing that will show up for us is what we're capable of holding. And there was something about the energetic of the retreat center, which didn't have in their membership a whole bunch of diversity to begin with. And so the capacity, energetic capacity to hold diversity is, I guess, what I'm speaking to. Because I continued the retreat actually with another retreat center, but I still just held it by myself and I got diversity again and the women who showed up. And all kinds of diversity. And I know in those places, women have come who have expressed that they became close friends with women of other races that they didn't think that they would. They just hadn't imagined themselves getting to know each other. But that's just because we created spaces in those retreats for people to be in relationship, to get to know each other, to have deeper conversations than surface level where we're usually stopped to ask conversations that really speak to what it's like to be you. <laughs> and to see that often that's not very different than what it's like to be me. So I know a lot of people who think they can get those kind of results just by bringing people into the same room. Kind of clarify this concept of thing around like capacity to hold and maturity is the term you used before. And what I hear is that, yes, you can bring people together. And if you've done kind of the deep healing work of self-reflection and integrating, right, of integrating all the components, the deeper you've done that work internally, the deeper the people you facilitate, so to speak, a conversation with can go. Like they can go deeper yeah. because you've gone deeper, right? That's what yeah. you mean by holding and maturity, right? Yes. I often will say my job is to hold the bottom. So the more work I can do on my own self to lower what the bottom is, then that gives more opportunity and space for people to swim in when they come in, in places that I'm at. And I think one of the things that's really tricky and that's um, tricky about this work is that, you know, a lot of the, the work or conversations are done in circle practice and there's, you know, methodologies for that. And I think it can look like when it's done well, it can look like there's not really much happening because... What is happening is it's happening on an energetic level of actually holding all that's in the room. And you have to have done enough of your work to know how to be in that and hold that container in a way that when things want to bubble up, that you know how to address it and how to be in it together. And I've just seen people jump into it because they haven't taken on their own stuff and because trauma wants to be healed. What happens is they get in a circle and all their stuff shows up in the circle. It's like the people who have their triggers will show up in that circle and in that space. And what they find themselves is in the middle of the wrestle of their own trauma while they're trying to hold space for other people. And it can get really messy. I'm going to connect to what you're sharing with what came up in our episode around personal healing. 
So Yvonne, who's a Reiki teacher and also kind of focuses also on the energetics, but more connected to the individual body, uh, mentioned that part of what healing practices do is lower the level of stress so that the body can uh, increase its own practices of healing because the body has a number of healing systems, right? All healing ultimately happens the bot, like the pill doesn't heal you. It's your body that's healing. It's just the pill oftentimes can either speed it up, spark it, or it can lower the pain while your body does what your body does. But all healing ultimately is within the healing system. And kind of what I hear you saying when you say like you're holding space and when it's done well, it looks like nothing quote unquote is happening is because what's actually lessening are the reactions, which is that re-triggering and the re-traumatization is often in the reaction. And so if you lower the reaction level, then people can be held, which is basically like heard and acknowledged and valued without reactions. And so it's really interesting that part of what you do in circle practice is to allow people to kind of relax and be less reactive to each other so that then the healing system that is the community, right? Because the community also has its own, can like activate and start kind of repairing, repairing between relationships, between people. And we have such a desire to be witnessed as human beings that kind of came up in our last episode on community healing, right? We have such a desire to be witnessed and heard. I think it's more than just a desire because what I think happens is I think that there's unconsciously, there's a part of us that knows that our stories are our way out. The witnessing of our stories are a way to our healing. Often, I think we all know people who will just tell their stories over and over again, and we get tired of hearing them. And I think part of that is because they're trying to make the leap from telling their story to sharing their story. Even if they don't have the language, unconsciously they know by sharing their story, there's an opportunity for transformation. So the telling the story is the telling of just the details of what happened. And oftentimes people can tell their story and have lots of emotion around it. And so we think they're really sharing it, but they haven't quite gotten there yet. The sharing their story is actually taking you to the place with and going through it and having someone bear witness to the journey. And that's transformative not only for the person telling the story, but for the person hearing the story. And we can learn to become listeners where we listen and bear witness in such a sacred manner that we listen people into sharing their stories so that transformation can occur. I love that. The difference between telling of story and sharing of the story, right? The telling is you're just describing it over and over again. And I think that's the part that has us most kind of like bored for those of us who are writers, right, the sharing is actually putting you there with them. It's describing the scene. So you're actually walking the journey with that person, although they're sharing it, you actually yes. can see it, feel it, touch it at the same time. And yes. so I get what you're saying. It's almost like there's a neuro pathway that's possible when I share the story and I have you walk the journey with me. It's as if you're walking it with me and then like my brain remembers it in a new way, right? Like my brain remembers it as I've, I've been there with you as opposed to me being alone. One of my community mamas, one of the things she says, her name is Eileen Cooper-Reed. She has said to me that people are hungry for people to be able to hear their stories in the way that their hearts felt it. 
Um, I have a teacher, Georgia Pomeria, who also has said, you know, in the Bible where it says, thou shall not bear false witness, that it's not just about lying. It's about not bearing witness. It's about not showing up to witness each other. Because it's an African belief that if we're not witness, we don't even exist. And so that being seen in that deep, soulful way is healing for us. So is there an anecdote you can share from your own healing process? So this February 2nd will be the 10th anniversary of my mother's death. When my mother died, she was still married to my stepfather. My mother had a heart attack in the middle of the night. She was 54 years old. My parents were 15 going on 16 when I was born, so my mother was really young. I remember when she died, I'm my mother's only child, so I was in such grief. I was at the hospital, and my stepfather was there, and he gave me my mother's wedding rings, actually, at the hospital. And I was in such pain. I just didn't know what to do with the wedding rings. I actually, I had my minivan, and I put them in the cup holder because I couldn't even deal with it at that point. I was My mother died without having life insurance. And so my then husband, he had told my stepfather that we would help pay for the services. He just needed to decide kind of what funeral home he wanted to use. And I got back home. At this point, it was about four o'clock in the morning, probably. Slept a little bit and then woke up. And later that morning, my stepfather called and he said to me, I know you think that your mother chose me over you. Now, this is the morning that my mother died. I remember saying to him, I can't have a conversation with you right now. Chest was in such grief. And it was about two weeks later, I guess, or whenever it was that it was time to go pick up my mother's ashes. She was cremated. I was in the bathtub that morning and I was sobbing. I was at that point, just with the grief, I would often go into the bath just sit and let the water do the healing work that water does. And I remember thinking that she chose him over me. And what came to me in that moment is, oh no, that's not what happened. And I got it for the first time that she chose him over her. She couldn't even see me. I wasn't even a part of her equation because she was in survival mode. What I got is that I could choose her, that she wasn't strong enough to choose me, but I was strong enough to choose her. And it was the first time that I realized that her being with him really had nothing to do with me. And I remember leaving to go pick up her ashes. And I called him because I had some dishes to return to his house. And he didn't answer. And so I picked up the ashes and I dropped them off at his house. And I was driving back home. And he called me and said to me, oh, I know what we can do with your mother's ashes. And I said to him, "Um, we have already decided me and my family. And I said to him, you know, I finally got it. I told him that I finally got that my mother didn't choose him over me. She chose him over her. And he said to me, well, that he was sorry. And he knew that there was nothing that he could ever do to make it up to me. And I said, no, that's not true. I've asked you to do your healing work and you've chosen not to. And so I'm done. That was the last time that I've talked to him. And so for me, it wasn't just me. I think it was my mother really helping me to be clear, to reconcile in myself, like, oh, if she had the capacity, she would have if she could have, because I am her. I'm her daughter, you know? And that piece about we can't give what we don't have, that she wasn't able to show up for me in that way because she wasn't able to show up for herself in that way. It's such a touching story, Clinita, and thank you for being willing to share the depth at which you go in your own healing. 
So I'm going to ask you a kind of private question, kind of for the purpose of weaving the threads that we're weaving today, I think is important. So what part of that that you just described was racial healing? I think we're not compartmentalized people. This is where my integral theory comes in, that we're whole people. And so I don't see it as separate. I think that as we heal, we heal. And then my capacity to have more compassion for others is expanded. I think we've forgotten the connection between grief and compassion, that most of us would consider ourselves compassionate people. And to a certain extent, we would be right. But I think so much of our compassion is just very shallow because we haven't done our own grief work. And so your own personal grief work, the willingness that you have to go into the depths of that helps to have your compassion not be so shallow. It helps to deepen your compassion for others. I think all healing actually in some ways is racial healing because we're expanded as a whole. It's not, we're not compartmentalized people. And I often say, I think it's funny that I end up doing so much diversity and inclusion work because that's not what I went into work to do. My work is healing work. It just so happens that that's where the healing is being called for often these days. Beautiful. And I think just like not as an opposition, right, but adding to you and I have had a lot of conversations around the fact that oftentimes what's tough in so-called diverse partnerships is that there's an intergenerational wound that shows up. Yeah. So you and I have talked a lot about um, kind of the black woman, white woman wound showing up between us, and we've processed yeah. some of it. I know we've talked about how it shows up with other partnerships that we've had. So I think I'd like to talk a little bit about that, because I, I think that's a really unusual conversation. It's one you and I have frequently, <laughs> um, yeah. but I, I don't hear it often in the outer world. So just speak a little bit to my personal experience and then you can kind of add on to it that there is a, um, a narrative, like a pattern of societal behaviors that we created during enslavement. And it, it has multiple components. It's sort of like a theater, right, where there are multiple actors. And at that time, it became normal for white women to suppress that their husbands were raping black women regularly. And then it became normal for uh, white men to terrorize the enslaved Africans and pretend it wasn't affecting them emotionally. I don't know if it did or didn't or they stuck. But anyway, on the outskirts, they couldn't be soft. And so they had to become more and more brutal. There are some aspects of that wound in terms of how it was dealt with on the enslavement side of like what what black folk had to do to survive enslavement. And so that wound, which was never healed, Joy DeGruy in like post-traumatic slave syndrome says, you remember that day after uh, emancipation when we all got free therapy? You know, then there were the grandparents with those wounds raised grandchildren and raised grandchildren, raised grandchildren. And so both culturally and now we know through epigenetics, through our DNA, we've been handing down these wounds over and over so I know that there, I'm an empath, so I can feel it emotionally. Like there are moments in my partnerships where I can just, I call it the race wall. It's like, there's literally this moment where like there's disconnection happens and you can tell that there's something thicker between each other than, than simply the relationship of what was said. Like it's, it's something deep, it's something ancestral and, it, and it's tough to handle. And I think most people know that exists intuitively, which is why most folks are afraid of 
just being straight up and honest. I think one of the ways that, that I know that you and I have dealt with it is just by naming it and saying, like, feels like intense. I'm wondering, like, am I reacting to you or to this person because this is the old wound that's being poked? I'm going to go back and do some of my personal work around this so I can reflect and then let's, let's talk about it again. So that there's like the separate healing and then there's the coming back together around what have we discovered? What, what did we find out? So that's the kind of one of the ways that I've experienced racial healing in the work, but also just being conscious that that wound's going to show up. And in White Fragility, kind of Robin D'Angelo talks about white women's tears, right? Like, that's like the big trigger of the, that plantation narrative or theater oftentimes is like that white women cry or cry, scream, whatever, distressed, and then white men suddenly get activated to protect them. And most of the time people of color or black folk get scapegoated. So just paying attention to like those kind of dynamics. And of course, you know, Robin D'Angelo writes about it, but people of color have been writing about this stuff forever. I think like Du Bois talks about it in The Souls of White Folk and that was a little bit of a spiel just kind of around what I know around kind of racial wound and how that shows up. Um, I'm curious if you want to add or oppose. I think what I'm interested in is I'm always looking for what brings us back to center. One of the things I'll say often is that we're all swimming in the water of what is right, real and true as white and male. And I'm just really clear, getting clearer and clearer these days that that's not my yardstick. And if that's not your yardstick, everything changes. Even what is healed changes. Your definition of what, who is the most healed changes. I think that we don't acknowledge in this country that the legacy of slavery isn't just carried by people of color that white people have wound of slavery that they carry. There's a woman who I'm writing with right now who I love. Her name is Amy Halton, where she wrote a line of one of the hardest things for white people to come to terms with is that you all have been purveyors of half-truth. And I think that purveyors of half-truths influences so much. There was racial healing. If you're talking about racial healing work, there's a group a woman I overheard in a circle um, say to a group of white people that she worked with that she was tired of teaching them and that, you know, they needed to take on their own healing and their own work. And then she was walking me out to my car, helping me take things to my car and said, you know, I want to learn from you. And I said to her, OK, but I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like. <laughs> and I said to her, it is your responsibility to help them heal but your issue is that you think they're more healed than you are because you're using their freaking yardstick. But if you don't use their yardstick, it's not healed to be disconnected from your heart. If the yardstick changes, everything changes. What I see and what we're doing around racial healing in this country today is that we actually are just using the same yardstick but trying to replace who's on top. So we're just telling white men in the circle they need to come and shut up and sit down and be quiet. And that doesn't help anybody either that our job isn't to just shift who's leading. Our job is to help to increase everyone's personal power in the room. So then the capacity when we go out is that we have more compassion for each other. And so what brings us back to center? When I was looking at whether or not I was going to include Enneagram work in my practice, there's a woman who was working with me and wanted to bring it in. And, and here in Cincinnati, Ohio, it's really popular, but there's very few people of color. What I found is the Enneagram focuses on shadow. And in this culture, white people are told they're supposed to be perfect. So their shadow is where their blind spot. People of color are taught they will never be perfect. So their shadow is where their light is. 
And so we have to come at it from different angles in our healing to come back to center. And there's healing on both sides. And I love what you're naming because I think the big taboo we've created inside of all of our systems, which we'll kind of talk about on other shows that we're not going to go there deeply, but all of our systems are set up to compare people of color to whites as if whites got it, as if whites are healed. Both of us carry the legacy of slavery. Absolutely. Because the slave archetype, the shadow side of the slave archetype is being a slave to a person, a thing, or even an idea. White people were enslaved during slavery too, because you can't enslave another and not be enslaved yourself. Absolutely. The light side of the slave archetype is being a slave to the divine spirit within. It actually teaches us self-mastery. It's how we find our freedom. So I wrote this in an article that I recently published on Medium. I spent some time in, in Mankato over the holiday with our friend Katie to just kind of witness the reconciliation walk happening there between Native Americans and whites. I wrote something in this article, but basically what has us believe as whites that we can literally enslave, torture, abuse, dispossess, dismantle communities, pull folk away from their land, and just like all these sorts of terrors for centuries and be unscathed ourselves. That's impossible. We cannot be unscathed. And I think for white folk, like I love the book uh, White Fragility because I think it's a good wake up call to having us see how part of how we've terrorized the world is by having this assumption of our own fragility. And that's not going to heal us because you can't talk someone out of our of their reactions. Like part of why as white folk we're constantly reacting is because there's a wound that's pressing underneath. And so I'm, I'm like thinking in my own writing about kind of how to write something around healing white fragility because you can't talk someone out of their own reactions. Anyway, so that's the work like we white folk have to do. So thank you for, for kind of bringing that to the surface. Do you have any last thoughts before I'm going to ask you kind of how people can connect with you in a minute? What you were speaking to around the white fragility is when you're keepers of half-truths, you can hold that kind of peace. One of the things that I think is a hard thing for white people to acknowledge in the legacy of slavery is that they couldn't take care of themselves. That people of color, the slaves, took care of all of their needs, even down to dressing them. And so it really turned them into children. And that legacy of how I think we're all facing in this country is how do we grow up? I think we're such an adolescent culture. And a part of healing that wound of that legacy of slavery for white people is looking at how do you grow up? How do you start to really acknowledge all of what is true and not just live in half truth? Thank you, Quinita. I'm so uh, honored to be on a little bit of this journey with you. Thank you really for taking your time today to be with us. Quinita Robertson out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Tell us how we can uh, get in touch with you, how people can look out for your work and find out more um, and be with your yummy self. The best way or easiest way, I think, is my website. My company's called Nazuzu, N-Z-U-Z-U. And so I can be reached at www.nzuzu.com. Also, one of the things that I'm working on right now with my um, colleague, Tennyson Wolf, is we're doing a 16-month leadership rites of passage cohort for adults. Looking at this of how do we grow up? How do we move from adolescent adults to initiated adults so that then we can initiate the youth? And we have a website for that too, but you can get the link of that on my website. You can go through there and it's called Fire and Water. 
Um, we're actually a quarter of the way through the first cohort. So I'm so excited. We should be posting this spring to early summer the applications for the next round, which will start in spring of 2021. Thank you for being with us, Quanina Robertson. This is really, really a treat. Um, thank you to our listeners for uh, being on the racial healing episode of Collective Power. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic. <laughs>